This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Okay, hi friends. Um, it feels really weird to be back in the podcast closet. It's fucking freezing in here for whatever reason. I got my reindeer socks on. I don't know why I need to know that, but I've told you now, and now you can have that information. Uh, in case you were curious, I did finish NaNoWriMo and my running challenge, so I gave myself a whole bunch of hooting and hollering at the, uh, the Serial Killer Sunday episode, but I'm still kind of routed, like, I'm riding cloud nine on that still. Um, unfortunately, though, apparently after I finished, like, both challenges, I kind of just forgot to be a person for a couple days. Like, there's just, like, six days of my life that are just kind of gone. I don't, I couldn't tell you what I did. I mean, Thanksgiving was in there somewhere, so I had to have done that, but it's all kind of a blur. It was like I used all my brain energy to, like, get everything out that I needed to, and then I was just kind of a, like, a soulless walking body for a couple days, but I'm feeling back to normal. Um, it was my first day back at my 9-to-5 job today, and so that really kind of, I was like, this is how you be a person again, instead of just lounging around the house playing Sims all day, <laughs> I actually had to, like, do work, so my brain cleared out the cobwebs. Um, I'm really excited to talk with you guys about the true crime we're going to talk about today. Um, kind of short, sweet, to the point. Um, not really a whole lot of, you know, like, if so if you're a patron and you've watched the Larry Eiler episode, which had to be split into two parts, I don't know if that one kind of didn't help the situation. I picked Larry Eiler thinking he wouldn't be a super convoluted, like, case. And for whatever reason, I had so much information on him that he was painful to cover. Like, that is my least favorite podcast I've done to date. Even blog posts. Like, that was the worst. I, it, you know, just, there's just stuff that you don't like to cover. And I don't know what it was about Larry and his whole spiel and all that, but like, I don't know. I got into it. I spent a lot of time researching it. And then once I started to cover it, I really just kind of hated it. So it ended up being a two part, um, uh, YouTube thing for the patrons. And I don't know if like that in combination with NaNoWriMo and with like the running challenge and just too many things kind of joined together to make the perfect storm, but that was the last thing I researched up until, yeah, up until now, really. I mean, I researched the Serial Killer Sunday, which even then, if you listen to that, it's not a very good episode, so I apologize in advance, but that one, like, I still hadn't really gotten my shit together in my brain yet. This one I feel a lot more confident about, but leading up to now, like, I really didn't feel that good about it. So, now I feel good. I'm feeling better. My brain is slowly coming back to normal. This one's nice and a simple, like, short little guy. It's good, okay? I'm just, it's happy. Well, it's not happy. We're talking about true crime, but I'm saying, like, my brain is happy again. Okay, so we're just, uh, gonna go into it, because that's what, that's what we do, you know? I talk for a couple minutes all awkwardly and weird, and then I don't have a good transition into what I'm going to do, so then I just kind of get awkward and tell you this is how we're going to start. So, our guy today is Randall Brent Woodfield. He went by Randy, so I will be referring to him as Randy for the rest of 
this because for some reason I just don't really like to say the name Randall. It doesn't feel right for me to say. I don't know. It's a weird name. I don't know why it's a weird name. <laughs> Sorry if your name's Randall. I'm going to call you Randy. So Randy was born on December 26th, 1950 in Salem, Oregon. Also, I was told that I say Oregon weird. Sorry, I guess I just always have called it Oregon. If people are like, it's not pronounced Oregon, it's spelled Oregon. But that, oh, that's a different word, so it's Oregon. Sorry if you're... <laughs> First five minutes, see how many people you can offend. Go for it. <laughs> no, but I'm calling it Oregon, so that's how it's spelled. Um, he was the third child of an upper middle class family. His mom was a homemaker and his dad was a high roller at Pacific Northwest Bell, um, which was a telephone company. Uh, it was really formed in 1961. I'm assuming he worked there before then, but Pacific Telephone and Telegraph, which are both owned by AT&T, here's my first rabbit hole, <laughs> um, was formed into Pacific Northwest Bell. The company's first job like the major job it was supposed to do was serve the Seattle World Fair, um, which opened 10 months after. Yeah, it was going to serve this the Seattle World Fair with the most advanced telephone service ever. And um, they did it in less than 10 months. So that's pretty impressive. And his dad worked there. From my understanding, he made a lot of money. Um, yeah, so Randall Woodfield's, oh, I did it, Randy, Randy Woodfield's two other sisters were successful later in life. Um, one went on to be a doctor and the other went on to be an attorney. And there are some people out there that speculate that this is kind of why he, well, not why he becomes the way he is, but he was constantly overshadowed by his older sisters. They were always more successful. They were always doing better than him. And I think that kind of turned his soul a little hateful towards women. Um, his mom was also a perfectionist and his father pushed him into sports during school, which he had a knack for, but he didn't really ever want. So he's in this well-known upper middle-class family that's well-respected in the community and well-known in the community. And you've got a successful dad and two sisters that are like straight-A students and successful in going to college and living their best life. And then I could see how he would feel kind of like the outcast and kind of pushed into things and maybe, you know, he felt like he had standards to uphold but didn't really know if that was his place to do so. Um, I wrote, right here, it kind of gives me Ramsey vibes. Not just because before John Bonet and all that situation happened, like, it was the same scenario. Like, the family was really well known. They had a lot of money. I mean, well, they had an astronomical amount of money, but, you know, they were well-to-do. They were well-known in the community. That's the kind of vibe I get from their family. Um, Randy went to Newport High School. He was a football star and popular among his peers. Um, although things looked normal for him, he was already doing some weird stuff. Uh, in junior high school, he exposed himself in public, and on one occasion in high school, he exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on a bridge. Um... I don't know how to say it, the Yaquina Bay Bridge, which is one of the most recognizable Route 101 bridges. Um, it goes over the Yaquina, Yaquina Bay, which is just south of Newport, where he was going to school. Um, for this, he was arrested for indecent exposure in high school. His football coach, though, was super scared of losing one of his star players and helped Randy hide the incident so he could remain on the team. But Randy's parents forced him to go to therapy after the incident, which... 
I don't know how that played out, but I'm sure to some extent it did not have the effect they wanted on their son. One could guess. Um, Because forcing someone to go to therapy usually doesn't end all that well. Like, you can be asked to go to therapy and, like, persuaded to go to therapy. But forcing someone to therapy typically kind of backfires, usually, I would assume. Because I'm assuming that person really doesn't want to go, but they're going because you're making them. I don't know how constructive that kind of therapy can be. But Randy graduated from high school nonetheless in... I guess 1968, I don't know the exact date, but if he was born in 1950, 18 years later, I would assume 1967 or 1968, um, and his criminal record was um, expunged, so there was no more record of him indecently exposing himself to people. Um, he then went to Treasure Valley Community College for a time, and um, in 1970, transferred to Portland State University. He was a wide receiver for the Portland State Vikings. He was active in the Campus Crusade for Christ and lived in his own apartment off campus. Uh, He was known by his coach and campus friends and teammates as being nice and, quote, gentlemanly. Um, He was known to be soft-spoken and kind of a loner, but he was still a really good athlete. So he just kind of kept to himself, did his sports, and really kept a low profile. Um, He, but, okay, just a, just the on the other side of that, he kept a really low profile, but he was arrested in college several times over really petty crimes. Um, in 1970, he vandalized the apartment of an ex-girlfriend. In 1972, he got another publicly public indecency charge. In 1973, he got caught for public indecency again. Um, and they were in two different areas. One was in Vancouver, Washington, and the other was in part of Oregon. A lot of these crimes take place in Oregon, but also between, like, Oregon and Washington, um, along the I-5, which is where we're going to get to his nickname later. But along the I-5 is basically where all these crimes kind of take place. Um, which, and I had said off the rip, so when I research crimes, I don't read to the end and then start writing. I like to see it as kind of like an adventure. So usually I have like five or six tabs on my computer open and I'll, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I usually start with Wikipedia because for the most part, it's the most like, here's your blip of information. And then you can kind of take little things that you read there and build off of it and say like, oh, well, this is a cool fact. Like, I wonder what that is. Or like, oh, they mentioned that X, Y, and Z happened. Well, what's the deeper story? And then you can Google that tidbit and get like, news articles, court documents, that kind of stuff from the tidbit, but really Wikipedia is my my favorite place to start. Typically you can find more information from there. So, you know, I'm just reading the story and typing up as I go because once again, you don't want to get to the end and then have to go through and edit in different facts and different articles. So as I'm reading, I'm Googling and searching and typing that in on my computer. So I don't know why I know how the story ends. Obviously, he is who he is, and he ended up on this podcast for a very specific reason, but at this time, devil's advocate, public indecency, and, like, trashing your girl ex-girlfriend's apartment, I went to college, I knew college boys, I was a college girl. These things don't sound that crazy to me, if that makes sense playing devil's advocate. I could see if this was just the case, I can totally understand how these things kind of got swept under the rug and not really paid attention to. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying like, 
he the whole the old caveat of he's just being a boy being a boy or he just got drunk he was a college kid he was a jock he was at a party you know like these I can see these things being like oh well you know because the whole the whole you know story of like well if you go and take a like if you pee outside by a park like you can be labeled as a child molester for like you know like a sex offender you become a sex offender for like peeing in the bushes by a park kind of the same vibe I got from this like maybe what he was doing it wasn't good it wasn't right but maybe it got blown out of proportion um I know later that that is obviously not the case and not that I'm trying to give good old Randy a um a cop out here but just you know I'm playing like I said I'm playing devil's advocate you know none of it's good none of it's right none of it's okay devil's advocate um so Randy dropped out of college three semesters short of graduating with a bachelor's in physical education, um, and weirdly enough, he was selected as a wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers in 1974. Um, he was a 17th round pick. He signed a contract in February of 1974, but was cut during training camp, and he never made the team's final roster. Um, and this is because, not because of talent, but because, I mean, maybe talent had something to do with it, but um, he also had a lot more flashing incidents during these, this time, and that's why he was ultimately cut from the team. By 1974, he had over a dozen indecent exposure incidents, and um, that's a lot. <laughs> and I'm assuming the Packers are just like, yep, we're not playing this game anymore. Like, we're, you're out because you're 17th round pick. And, like, the NFL draft, like, yeah, you're gone. Um, Browns players have gotten cut way later for way worse, so I'm not surprised. Um, yep. After he was cut by the Packers, he played the 1974 season with the Manitowoc Chiefs, which, if you know what Manitowoc is, or Manitowoc, whatever you want to say it, the Manitowoc Police Department, have you ever watched Making a Murderer? Because that place holds a special place in my rage heart. Um, that was a weird sentence. <laughs> so after his season with the Chiefs in like late 1974 time, Randy left Wisconsin and returned back to Portland, Oregon, but he was upset and ashamed that he didn't make it big in his football career. Um, well, if you'd stop whipping your dick out, maybe you could have made it big in your football career, sir. That's... I feel no pity for people who are in a situation, or for people who cause a situation for themselves and then just want to have a pity party instead of doing what you can to make your life different. Everybody can make choices. Everybody can change what they're doing. And it's not like you, it's not like the situation of where, you know, you pee in the park and you're a sex offender. It's like you whipped your wiener out on over 12 separate occasions stop <laughs> just stop doing that you know I don't understand like you did this to yourself so I feel no pity for you you could have stopped like whipping your dick out like that's the easiest way to stay on the, the team <laughs> like that's all you had to do just stop keep your dick in your pants that's all you had to do you could have you could have stayed a packer that's all I'm saying so cry me river Randy Woodfield I don't feel bad for you by early 1975, there were several reports of Portland women being forced at knife point to perform oral sex, and then they were robbed of their purses. Um, female 
police officers acted as decoys, and on March 3, 1975, Woodfield was arrested after being caught with marked money from one of the undercover officers, which my question there, and I was unable to clarify, was that officer, like, attacked? What? Uh, uh, right? Because I didn't, I was not able to find that out. I, didn't, I looked, believe me, because I'm curious. Did he attack an officer, and she just, like, let him do it, and then stole her purse, and they found the caught marked money like I would like some can I have some clarification on that please if anybody knows the answer to that I would like to know is that officer okay like she attacked I don't know that's concerning um okay so when he was confronted Randy Woodfield confessed but said due to his use of anabolic steroids he couldn't control his sexual impulse control he's still using steroids even though he got cut from every football team he was on and that's not a good excuse either way. Um, but by April 1975, he pled guilty to second-degree robbery, which what happened to the uh, sexual assault, I'm not sure, but he pled guilty to second-degree robbery. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but was paroled after four in July of 1979. Totally stable dude. Like, clearly, you've caught him whipping his wiener out on 12-plus separate occasions, and now you know that he's attacking women and doing this, but he only gets 10 years? That seems like not... Well, technically, he only gets four years. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of time. And if he was paroled, and he was on parole after this, how long was his parole for? Because we're about to flash to October 9th, 1980, and he's doing some, uh, he's doing some stuff. How long was his parole? Because clearly nobody was checking up on this guy. Because he's... He's doing a whole lot of business in the next, like, year and a half. Shouldn't he have been on parole? It's my question, but I digress. We'll continue. On October 9th, 1980, Sherry Ayers, who was 29, she was an x-ray technician and former classmate of Randy. Um, she was raped and murdered in her apartment. Her body was found by her fiancé on October 11th, two days later. Um, she had been bludgeoned to death and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Oddly enough... Miss Ayers and Randy Woodfield had known each other since second grade. Um, they both attended the same schools in Newport. So while Woodfield was in prison, um, she and Randy had been communicating through letters. Apparently, he had written to her and she was just merely responding. Um, Ayers' family knew about their communication, though, so um, they gave Randy Woodfield's name to the police. He was questioned, but he refused to sit for a polygraph test. <clears throat> and this is where... Had this happened in today's day and age, this would have been an open and shut case. Like, this would have been where it was over. I'm feeling a bit froggy. I don't know, I just had to take a break to cough, cough it out. Um, okay. So, like I said, this would have all been over right here, right now, if forensic science was a little more advanced at the time. So, they tested Randy's blood, but it did not match the semen found in Miss Ayers' body, and therefore he was never charged. So they had, from my understanding, a decent suspicion that it could have been him, seemed likely. But his, they didn't match. It wasn't a match. So I went down a little rabbit hole on this to say, why didn't it match? Because it was him. It, it was like, years later it was determined to actually be him. So my question was at the time, why was it missed? The problem at the time was that DNA evidence wasn't as good as it is now. 
the lab did a basic test to try and determine the, su- the suspect's blood type. So the semen sample came up as um, O factor blood. So you know there's four different types of blood. There's A, B, A, B, and O. O is the universal donor. AB is the universal acceptor. We're going to get into a little bit of science here because I found this really fascinating. And it wouldn't be a good podcast with at least one science rabbit hole. Cool. So the semen sample came up as O factor for blood. Woodfield was B negative. So from my understanding would be because... Technically, the red blood cell for O-type doesn't have any sugars on it. So all, everybody's blood except for O has like a type of sugar on the outside of it. I don't know a better way to describe that. I learned this in biology like six years ago. Longer than that. I'm not going to date myself. Um, so <clears throat> based on the sugars, so there's, here's the deal. <laughs> The O factor can be found in both A and B blood types, so technically it didn't rule out Woodfield, but the evidence wasn't there to convict him either. So I did my own little research to try and remind myself how blood works. Based off of how blood works with the sugars on the outside, O doesn't have any sugars on the outside. A has A sugars, B has B sugars, and AB has A and B sugars, right? So based on your blood type, you have these antibodies in the plasma of your blood. And you also have antigens in the blood cell of your blood. So that's why if you have a certain blood type, you can't accept everybody else's blood type because the antibodies in the plasma of your blood are going to attack anything that doesn't match. That's how they read it. So if you've got A blood type and you have the A sugars, the antibodies in your blood are going to be anti-B. So if if it sees anything with the B sugars in your blood, it's going to kill it. Makes sense? That's how it uses it to target. So everything with A is hunky-dory, fun and good. Anything that comes in that's not A is bad. So when you have O blood, there's no sugars on it, and you've got anti-A and anti-B antibodies in the plasma. I'm assuming you you could read that I'm okay I don't know anything well I I don't know anything about semen right I'm assuming plasma is what they're testing for for this whole thing to be whatever because if O has both anti-A and anti-B antibodies in the plasma then you could only theoretically cross out a, B as B. That's the only person you could eliminate because A has anti-B and B has anti-A and O has both of those antibodies. So you could say it was O-type, but you can't eliminate A and B. You could only eliminate A, B. That makes sense. Are you following? Because I know that's a little confusing. Blood. And that's just how it was. They didn't... So even like in paternity tests, way back in the day, they can only test by blood type, so they know via the math and the, you know, the Punnett squares of how, how, well, I mean, there's way more to blood type than Punnett squares, but certain blood types can only genetically give birth to other blood types. You know, does that make sense? Like, that's part of your genetic information that you pass on. So, you can only end up being so many of a blood type. So, if you, 
that's how they would tell paternity tests. Like, they know the mom's blood type, they know the baby's blood type, and if the dad's blood type didn't match up with what the baby ended up being, that was how they did old school paternity tests, which back then, like in this case, could be wrong, right? Because it's not, like, in-depth and DNA and all that. Um, so yeah, like I said, that they couldn't technically rule out Woodfield, but they also couldn't convict him either. In 1989, DNA testing became a thing. In 1992, um, Portland police resubmitted a semen swab to have it tested, but at the time, there wasn't a sufficient amount of sample. So, DNA testing came out, but unless you had a lot of whatever DNA you're trying to test, it'd be risky because that whole polymerization process which I, <laughs> I did for my own cheek in biology classes, you can duplicate that DNA and get enough sample to test a large amount on. Back then, I don't know if it was as sophisticated as it is now. So unless you had a lot of blood or a lot of semen or a lot of whatever, you know, if you've got this cold case and you only have one Q-tip of semen, you're not going to waste that in the event that, like, maybe there wasn't enough. And so they decided um, in 1992 to wait in, you know, hopes that... DNA testing, which it obviously has, they're waiting for it to become more sophisticated. Um, so finally in 2001, the match was made and it was ruled that, um, Randy Woodfield actually killed Sherry Ayers. But back, we're going to flash back to 1980, back when they didn't know that, um, on November 27th, which was Thanksgiving day of 1980, Darcy Renee Fix, 22, and Douglas Keith Altig, 24, were shot to death in their Portland home. Randy Woodfield had known Darcy through college. She was an ex of one of his close friends. The couple was shot and bound to death, execution style, and Douglas's um, point or thirty-two caliber revolver was missing from the home. Woodfield was questioned in these murders as well because he knew Darcy, but once again, there was no concrete evidence that pointed to his involvement, and so they couldn't. Like it was all circumstantial evidence, just because he knew her. Once again, devil's advocate, just because he knew her and he had a criminal record did not mean he killed her, so they couldn't just convict her, convict him of that, you know? So this is where we get into the I-5 bandit robberies. Um, good old Randy kind of changes up his vibe here just a touch. On December 9th, 1980, Randy put on a fake beard um, and held up a gas station in Vancouver, Washington with a gun. Four days later, on December 13th, he raided an ice cream parlor. On December 14th, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany, Oregon. And during one of these, he wore a band-aid across the bridge of his nose. So for any of these I-5 bandit robberies, he wore some type of disguise, either his hood over his head, a fake beard, and weirdly a band-aid across the bridge of his nose, like um, football players do, like the nose strips football players wear. Um, so he was, he was trying to be indistinguishable, but people knew he was wearing a disguise. And so if you look at, like, maybe I'll use that for the cover of this, like, the sketch drawings of him, they're pretty wild, because you can kind of tell they're all the same guy, and they all look very similar, and the, the, it's just eerie that he was so fucking wild, <laughs> and there were so many people who, who could even pick him up out of a lineup when it came down to it, so his disguises were really awful. On December 21st, Randy put the beard on again and accosted a waitress in Seattle, Washington. He trapped her in a restaurant bathroom and forced her at gunpoint to masturbate him. In January of 1981, he was dubbed the I-5 Bandit um, because of this rash of crimes. Uh, they were all committed along the I-5 highway. 
On January 8th, he held up the same Vancouver gas station he had in December, but this time, after the register was empty, he had the female gas attendant expose her breasts for him before he left. On January 11th, he robbed a market in Eugene, and the next day, he um, shot and wounded a female grocery store clerk in Sutherland, Oregon. On January 14th, a man wearing a false beard invaded a home that had two sisters, eight and ten, and forced them to disrobe and sexually assaulted both of them. Four days later, a man matching the same description went into an office building and sexually abused two women, Sherry Hole, who was 20, um, so he abused two women, Sherry Hole, who was 20, and an, another um, unnamed woman. Um, Sherry Hole was working as a cleaner in an office building. I'm assuming the other woman as well, since they were um, attacked together. Sherry Hole, unfortunately, um, was killed in the attack, but the other woman was shot and left for dead. She survived, so I'm not going to say any of the people who were sexually assaulted. I don't, I don't say their names, because sometimes they want to be private, which I guess is kind of fucked, because these other women were murdered, but I'm saying their names. But... I don't really know the fine line between that of when you should and when you should not. I just assume that if if they were sexually assaulted, I wouldn't say their names unless, like, it was public knowledge. These names you can find out in court records and court documents, but unless it was readily given, I don't search for that. And even sometimes when it is readily given, like, the, um, the girl who was assaulted with uh, Sherry Hole, they did give her name, but I decided to not include it. <clears throat> Because that just seems, just doesn't seem right. I don't know. I don't really, I guess there's there's no moral high ground when you're talking about true crime, I suppose. Because you're talking about, I mean, I'm talking about unspeakable things. But in my own moral high ground, I decide not to tell you the names of living victims of sexual assault. Because that seems, even for me, just way too dark to go into. Um, okay. Stepping off that pedestal, um, on January 26th and 29th, he committed more robberies and assaulted two more females. On February 3rd, 1981, the bodies of Donna Eckerd, 34, and her 14-year-old daughter were found shot to death in their home in California. Um, they were found together in a bed in their home. Each had been shot several times in the head. The daughter had been sodomized. Later that day, in the same area, a female store clerk was kidnapped, raped, and sodomized in a holdup. On February 4th, an identical crime happened in... Eureka. Five days later, a man held up a fabric store and molested the clerk and a customer before he left. On February 12th, 1981, um, there were robberies in Vancouver, Olympia, and Bellevue, Washington. These included three more additional sexual assaults. So we know he's kind of leading up to something big. That was February 12th. Um, We know for a fact that Woodfield had planned a Valentine's Day party at the Portland um, Downtown Marriott Hotel. He invited friends and acquaintances from college, and no one showed up. Later that evening, so Valentine's Day, later that evening, he drove to Beaverton to the home of a girl named Julie Reitz. She was 18. Um, she had met Randy Woodfield while she was a well, he was a bouncer at a bar in Portland. He went to her home, raped, and shot her in the head. Police were able to determine that Julie had a glass of wine with her attacker and was preparing coffee um, when she was killed. There was a package of instant coffee on the counter, and um, water in the kettle had boiled down, so the the burner was still on, but the pot, the, the um, kettle was empty. Um, she was either killed on Valentine's Day or early in the morning of the fifteenth. On February 28th, 
So by now, investigators had really focused on Woodfield. They really thought it was him and they just needed to pin him down. So, um, unfortunately, the I-5 bandit had struck three more times between the 15th and then. So between the 15th and the 28th, there were three more attacks along the I-5. Um, but by now, the detectives had been began, whoa, had began building their case. Um, they gathered a call log showing phone calls from payphones or calling cards near the murder sites around the same times that the murders were committed. So they're starting to look at victims and really, really pinning Randy Woodfield to those areas at the time these murders took place. So they're really going through all these counties and all these jurisdic- jurisdictions are working together and not so much a task force, but really compiling their information and figuring out where this guy's going. On March 5th, 1981, Randy Woodfield was brought to Salem Police Department for interrogation after he was positively identified in a photo lineup. His apartment was searched by a warrant two days later, and police found a spent um, 32 caliber shell casing and a bag of tape that matched the tape found on victims. That day, March 7th, Randy was taken into custody after being positively identified by several robbery victims. And I said that Beard did not do a great job because he was very identifiable in pictures and whatever they had to do. I'm sure they maybe took his mugshot and, like, photoshopped a beard onto it. And they were like, yep, that's the guy. So on March 16th, he received indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, illegal and illegal possession of firearms. And these were all initiated from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon. In the summer of 1981, Randy Woodfield was tried for the murder of, um, fuck, I didn't write her name down. Sorry, 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 sorry. Sherry Hull. I knew that was her name. Sherry Hull. He was indicted for the murder of Sherry Hull. Um, she was the one who was shot to death in the office building. He was also tried for the charges of sodomy and attempted murder of the other woman who, who survived the attack as well. The woman who survived testified against Woodfield in trial, and she was key to obtaining a conviction. Chris Van Dyke, son of the Dick Van Dyke, was Marion County, Oregon District Attorney, and he prosecuted Randall Woodfield's case, which is just wild. He would later say that Randy was the coldest, most detached defendant he had ever seen. After three and a half hours of jury deliberation, Randall Woodfield was convicted on all counts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. In October of 1981, um, there was a second trial in a different county. Woodfield was tried for sodomy and weapons charges uh, tied to attacks in the restaurants. Though they moved to, um, so they wanted to move the trial to a different city on fear of bias and like publicity that um, Randall had gotten over this time. Um, They didn't move the location and uh, Randy was convicted of an additional 35 years and it was added to his current sentence. Um, Randy Woodfield was not prosecuted for the rest of his potential crimes due to cost of multiple trials to cover them all. Um, it's assumed he just did them, but he's going to be spending the rest of his life in prison with no parole. And that's just the cost of trying him over and over and over again seemed like too much and a little overkill actually. So they just didn't, they just didn't try him for anything else. Uh, Randy Woodfield is currently serving his sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. And his time in prison has been pretty unnotable. In October of 1983, he was injured by a fellow inmate in a prison disturbance, which, you know, mind you, when he was arrested, he was 31 years old. So you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. You're only 31 years old. You know how much longer you're going to live? Like a very long time. I actually... 
how old quick google search you're gonna you're gonna come along with me for this randy woodfield how old are you he's 68 years old oh i could have done that math this idiot <laughs> stupid okay but so in October of 1983, he was injured by a fellow inmate in a prison, quote, disturbance. And in April 1987, this one actually made me kind of laugh. In April 1987, he filed a $12 million libel suit against Anne Rule, who wrote the book about him called The I-5. Um, the I-5 Killer, actually. It was the best-selling book in 1984. And so he's trying to sue Anne Rule for writing this book about his crimes. The lawsuit was dismissed in 1988, saying that the statute of limitations on that type of lawsuit had run out. So screw you, Randy Woodfield, you're not getting your $12 million lawsuit against Anne Rule to go through. Um, in 1990, more victims were discovered. He is suspected in 44 homicides and 60 unsolved rapes. In 2001 and 2006, he was connected to more murders um, that occurred between 1980 and 1981. He had a type, petite white women in their 20s um, with middle-class backgrounds, young employees of restaurants and convenience stores along the I-5. He also drove a Volkswagen Beetle, um, the Champagne Edition, so very a la Ted Bundy. Um, his attacks were random, but his murders were um, because of rejected sexual advances. So basically, he would attack women, but he wouldn't kill them unless he knew them and uh, made a sexual advance at them and they rejected him. That's when he killed women. Um, there are other possible victims that I put down here. Um, Martha Morrison, who was 17, she disappeared in Eugene, Oregon in September 1974. She was found murdered in the following month near Vancouver, Washington. Her her remains were unidentified until 2015, but both Woodfield and Ted Bundy have been considered suspects in her murder. And during the spring of 1980, Marsha Weeder, um, who was 19, and Kathy Allen, who was 18, vanished while hitchhiking from Spokane, Washington, um, to their hometown of Fairbanks, Alaska. Their bodies were found in May of 1981, and suspected serial killer was Martin Lee Sanders, but also Randy Woodfield falls on the potential... It's a little high, because Spokane, Washington, and Fairbanks, Alaska are a little further west than um, Randy really went, but you never know. Maybe he decided to go on a road trip to see the delightful state of Alaska and just decided to kill somebody on the way there, too. Unknown. So, there's two people um, to that, too. Um, also, during his time in prison, Randy was married three times and divorced twice. I'm under the impression that he's still married. Oh, I still have the Wikipedia page open, so I can look. Uh, doesn't tell you. Um, so apparently he might still be married. I don't know who he got married to, I just know that he, uh, might still be married. So, he's not doing that bad for himself in prison, I suppose. And that's that. See, like I said, short, sweet, to the point. Just, <laughs> just, you know, fucking... Randy Woodfield, and our time together. That was your True Crime Tuesday, friends. First one back after the hell that was November. I'm happy to be back. It felt good. Get the, get the dust out, you know? Get back into the swing of things. So, thanks for sitting here and listening to me ramble. I appreciate that, and I'll see you next week for True Crime Tuesday.